So what I'd like to do is, is, okay, Nick, you own your home. Clayton, you own your home. Mark, you own your home. So we want to reduce our carbon footprint and we want to reduce our operating costs. What each of us pick what you want to invest in for your house. Interesting little thought experiment here. I like these things. Okay. Yeah. So pick what you want to do. Um, uh, And I mean, it can be anything you want light bulb replacement, insulation, windows. Uh, and I'm not saying let's do detailed economic analysis, but we're all you know, smart guys. Been in this business for a long time. And I have geothermal, but that doesn't mean I don't get excited when my wife has you know, got three pots on the stove. It's a, a 97 degrees outside <laughs> and she's not running the exhaust fan. I'm like, you got to get that heat out of here. Otherwise it's going back to the geothermal. It's got to make more cooling. I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> ask her. She'll tell you. I believe uh, it. I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's oh, funny. <laughs> but you know, my point is, uh, yeah, I invested in geothermal because I had the opportunity and I would not have had there not been a federal incentive to do it. I guarantee you I would not have. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that little bit of conversation from after our podcast. We will be bringing that back to the surface in our next episode. But for now, this is VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. So, To get started, let's begin with a few introductions of kind of the key members of this energy podcast and a brief overview of each individual. Mark, do you want to start? Sure, I'll start. My name is Mark Sankey. I'm the president of VS Energy, been in the energy, energy conservation business with the Fortune 100 company beginning in 1982 and since then have owned my own businesses including VS Energy, which was founded in 2004 as a consulting entity. My experience includes multiple, I mean, many hundreds of industrial and commercial energy audits, ASHRAE level one, two, three, certified energy manager, instructor for a CEM program at multiple Fortune 100 entities, including Ford Motor Company, Toyota, and large-scale engineering of retrofits for reducing energy consumption, energy recovery, uh, fuel switching projects, cogeneration, just a, a wide spectrum of retrofits and technologies applied in large buildings, as well as the tools and follow-up required to do appropriate measurement and verification, commissioning, etc. Awesome. And then Nick, I'll let you roll into it if you'd like. Yeah, thanks, Clayton. As you know, my name is Nick Taliska, and I've spent all of my career so far in energy conservation and management. I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Clarkson University. I'm a licensed professional engineer in the state of Pennsylvania, and I hold accreditations from the Association of Energy Engineers in Energy Management, Measurement and Verification, Commissioning, and Energy Procurement. Haven't been doing this for 25 years. I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm in my professional sweet spot, if you will. Still firing on all cylinders, physically, mentally, 
And uh, with a healthy backlog of experiences, it's a good place to be in this field. And I'm really happy to be with both of you here today. Well, thanks, Nick. And guys, my name is Clayton Ferry. So my career is a little bit shorter than than your guys. I graduated college with my bachelor's in mechanical engineering in 2013 at Alfred State. From there, started working with Mark at VS Energy. Been involved really right from the get-go in a lot of large-scale integrations and energy projects. So started learning from the beginning. I passed my CEM exam and my FE exam. So I'm on the track to also becoming a professional engineer and really just learning every day. So there's a lot for me to still learn, but I think energy is really, truly my passion in, in the engineering field. And I have a lot to offer and I've learned a lot so far. So this will be a very fun and interesting podcast to discuss a lot of these topics with you guys. Absolutely. Mark, do you want to give us an overview of VS Energy? Sure. VS Energy was founded in 2004 by my financial officer, my wife, and I to provide large-scale integration strategies in engineering. Uh, central, we did several large central chill water plants, central steam plants, including controls, retrofits, commissioning, energy conservation calculations, et cetera, and did many, many energy audits, including development of strategies for ESCOs and industrial end user, including the strategies, the design, the supervision and construction management, commissioning, startup, and some measurement and verification. We've also provided support for legal proceedings resulting from failed ESPCs for both defendant and plaintiff and in all cases been successful, whether for plaintiff or defendant, and continue to provide engineering services, commissioning services, measurement verification, and construction management where it's appropriate. Awesome. And then Nick, just just to wrap this section up, what about applied facility science? Can you give us a brief overview of that? Oh, yeah, sure. We started uh, Applied Facility Science in 2003, did a lot of work with large energy service companies, supporting their teams in doing energy audits, feasibility studies, and uh, detailed project development. And over the years, we've kind of migrated more to the measurement and verification side uh, of the business and verifying that performance was as planned and helping out the companies that bring me on board to uh, help them make sure that things go as smooth as possible into the performance phase. And like, you know, as far as the energy field and measurement and verification, it's something uh, I've been drawn to over the years and really do enjoy the aspect of seeing a project come all together and be able to point and say, yes, it's doing what was designed or, you know, seeing areas where it's not working as planned and figuring out ways and helping teams to uh, rectify the situation and deliver the customer what they had expected. Awesome. So just for the listeners, obviously after introductions, we have us uh, quite the crew of energy professionals and then Clayton. <laughs> so there'll be, there'll be a lot of great information in this podcast. And, and what is this podcast really all about? 
To, to summarize it briefly, I, I guess I would consider it discussing the need and importance of energy conservation, along with some common methods of energy conservation. We'll dive into the energy audit process. We'll cover that extensively and give you guys professional opinions from the industry experts in the energy field. So that'll be Nick, Mark, and myself when I can add into it. I think we'll probably also bring in some other additional subject matter experts uh, ranging at everything from specific equipment that may include uh, or processes that may include cogeneration or things like that. And also from the contractual slash legal side, we have some very good legal counsel that we've worked with on a variety of failed ESPCs and we'll probably have some commentary from them as well. And I just uh, not to take your, your story away, Clayton, but I think from my perspective, this podcast will be beneficial to really engineers and students and building owners at many levels because we will cover a variety of workable strategies, practical application of energy conservation in the field. We have professionals that have a wide range of experience all the way from simple conservation strategies to large-scale energy recovery strategies. And of course, what is the cheapest BTU you can have? One that's already been used that you can reinfuse into a building or a process. We'll talk a little bit about renewables and the need for vigilance going forward because as Nick will probably attest to, uh, you can do a project in year one and by year five, the savings or the cost avoidance has started to diminish because there's no one monitoring. There's no one that has taken ownership of the process and consequently things revert to the state of maximum disorder, which is not the most efficient. I agree completely and don't don't feel bad about jumping in there. I think you covered it very well for the listeners. So hope they're excited to, to listen to this podcast series. I think we'll have a lot to offer for them. Now, let's just start with a little bit of conversation regarding energy conservation. Obviously, really will always be a requirement for facilities. And I think in this day and age, people, renewables are becoming more popular you know, when, when people think of energy conservation, they think of solar panels, wind turbines, stuff like that, right? And that's not necessarily the case because for that technology to be utilized to its full extent, I would say a facility needs to have gotten skinny, we'll call it, right? We need to reduce as much energy consumption as possible prior to really bringing renewables into, into the game because they're expensive. They take up a lot of real estate and um, that, you know, they, I don't know. I don't know if I want to add anything else to that, but just being expensive and, and the real estate they take up, you can't fully subsidize your energy consumption with renewables if you're wasting a boatload of energy. It's interesting, Clayton, that when you said, when you think of energy conservation, you think of solar panels and, and wind turbines and you know, I guess I was mentored by people that probably were advancing their career in the 70s and 80s. So when I think of conservation, I think of more or less turning things off that aren't being used. Right. Uh, right. The mindset has kind of changed. It used to be that energy equals dollars and there, there was always opportunities. Everybody wants to save money, whether it's good times or bad times. You know, you're looking to get a competitive edge. You're looking to really get a hold of 
what you're you're spending your resources on but now energy does not always just equal dollars it's equal to dollars and the well the non-dollar attributes of it which you know is a big part of the renewable push not only for their the economic feasibility because a lot of times it's straight up not necessarily there but it's for some other reasons that people pursue energy conservation these days and i'm not saying it's bad just a right. different, different perspective on things well nick i agree 100 percent and in in the strictest definition of the word actually renewables in terms of solar wind are not necessarily conservation in and of themselves they are in fact renewable but they're still producing energy and it probably is is a low cost of production but not low cost of construction and when you look at it it makes less sense to waste that energy because right now it makes up a very small component of our, our national or global energy production that's the energy that we should be using the most wisely because it is expensive to build it the wind especially can be expensive to maintain so it, it it was a few years ago that actually I published a white paper for the Association of Energy Engineers that was pretty detailed in terms of the economic analysis of new production using either renewables or traditional cogeneration, tri-generation technologies. And it, it was very clear that using whether whether it be by internal funding or through an ESPC process that conservation that is putting technologies in place inside the fence of the building to reduce energy consumption whether it's through control strategies like demand controlled ventilation those kinds of things or ice storage or any of the other technologies that can be applied those conservation strategies are always a better investment than building new technology for energy generation be it solar or wind so to Clayton's point, get skinny before we start talking about let's make more investment in solar or wind because that investment, the first investment, the one that provides the highest yield is the one that you should be making first. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting too, a lot of people, maybe maybe not a lot of people, I don't know. In my eyes, it seems like a lot of people don't look at the carbon footprint, right? Just installing a wind turbine, or solar panels to to subsidize that energy, you know, and generate it yourself doesn't mean you're reducing your carbon footprint at all. You may even be increasing it by the time, you know, for manufacturing and concrete and all that stuff to install these alternative energy sources. So implementing smart control strategies reduces your carbon footprint. Adding a wind turbine necessarily doesn't. So I don't know, it might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth noting in this conversation. Well, I think it's a great point because strictly speaking, like Mark said, conservation, I, I think most people would think you're you're lowering the amount of of that resource that you're consuming. And people think of it in terms of BTUs and that's not always the case. And then to your point, Clayton, it depends on really where you're drawing that that dotted line of uh, your your boundary around and what you're right. considering to be your footprint. Yep. And you're right, if you extend it back through the whole chain through manufacturing a product, yeah, it can get pretty complicated and probably a good reason why 
people don't necessarily expand their vision that far into looking at really what the net impact globally would be. No, I agree. So let's talk a little bit about then actually conserving energy and why why it is valuable maybe for a facility to contract energy professionals like yourselves that can come in and identify where energy can be conserved. I know, especially some facilities might say, well, we have an onsite energy manager and that energy manager may be doing a pretty good job identifying where some conservation opportunities are. But I think having a cold eye come through and really seasoned professional come through can coming through can truly benefit a facility. Oh, this is good. This is story time, right? Perfect. Yes, it is. Yep. Okay. (laughs) So uh, uh, Clayton, your point's exactly right. We've been in facilities, many facilities have very skilled facilities managers, but it's, it's so true that a cold eye review of anything by an engineer will usually yield results. And I'm a very firm believer that engineering is a extremely iterative process where the worst engineer on the planet can improve the best engineer's design with a cold eye review. Now it may not be orders of magnitude improvement, but it'll be, it'll be an improvement. And a a case in point about five years ago, we did a project at a plastics connector manufacturing company, a fortune 100 company where they had a very large series of air handlers. I, I, if I remember right, there were 12 air, uh, 12 or 14 air handlers, big though, 35,000 CFM a piece. And we went to do a level two, uh, ASHRAE level two audit and going through the building. And it was July in the Midwest and the boilers were cranking. I mean, cranking two big, um, water tube boilers and they were cranking and producing a water temperature below 140 degrees. So the right out of the bat, right out of the chute, the boilers were non, they were not designed to be condensing boilers and they were in condensing mode. So that was bad. Core boilers. Mm. Yeah. Bad for the boiler. And obviously they were trying to reduce consumption without regard to the longevity or operational integrity of the boiler. And that was certainly not intentional. So then we get to the air handlers and, and my question was, why are we running the boilers? Well, we need the heat because we're in dehumidification. So I think, okay, automatically we're providing reheat energy. We go and look at the um, air handling units and I had to scratch my head a little bit because all of the heating coils were not reheat coils. They were preheat coils. So they were on the inlet side of the cooling coil. And I said, well, wait a second. We are simultaneously heating and cooling and not providing reheat energy. So what we've basically done is increase, and they had four chillers running. So they had, you know, their boilers plus their chillers running plus these preheats and the cooling coils running flat out, trying to dehumidify. And there was you know, a little bit of condensation coming out, but not a significant amount. So we had to go to the whiteboard and project the psych chart. And I needed to walk them through. Here's what's happening is, okay, we're raising up our inlet to the coil to about 105 degrees. That cooling coil needs to bring it all the way down to the saturation temperature before it starts to dehumidify. The 
heating coils were providing no purpose except to load up the chillers without any net benefit of dehumidification. So they turned off the boilers, more condensate started to come out, and it was that simple. But they, they not only did, so these air handlers, they were installed, I think, seven at a time. Phase one project, they installed seven, and the same design-build contractor installed the next seven exactly the same way, and all it did was increase their energy consumption. No net benefit of additional dehumidification. I can imagine the payback on that was, was immediate. Immediate, it was, it was like yeah. I know it's just hilarious to think. Or, yep, right. shut it off. It's done. Yeah. You, yeah. Here's your and, payback. And two chillers went offline as soon as we turned off the boilers. So two chillers go offline. They're still providing you know all the dehumidification, and it, it was that simple. But as I said very good engineering manager at the, I mean, uh, energy manager, good guy. They had won internal awards from their, you know, from corporate headquarters internally for reducing energy by doing lighting retrofits and those kinds of things. But that, that enormous waste was overlooked because it had always been like that. Right. Well, and that's a great example of just some of the tenets of, of conservation one being just turning things off when you don't need it. But even before that would probably be eliminate those places of just blatant waste and simultaneous heating and cooling is a great example. And not only with results that are going to, you know, show up immediate in, in their energy costs and bills, but you probably saw an immediate change in the, in the comfort conditions as well there. And it's probably alleviated some problems that they were having, but to the point of, the cold eye review and that, and, and I agree, every substantial facility should have a, an energy manager per se, but I kind of look at kind of bringing somebody else in from the outside. Uh, it's kind of like reading a biography or autobiography, you know, in six, seven hours, you can essentially digest somebody else's life, take the good and the bad from it. And a lot of times when, you know, you talk about bringing somebody in here that has a different you know, exposure to experiences versus somebody that works in a facility, they're going to know that facility and the ins and outs very well. But then the one thing they may be lacking is a diverse experience from working in hundreds or thousands of buildings and seeing many different things work and not work. And then being able to bring that and, and distill it down and kind of bring a synthesis of, hey, here's, here's what we think would work best for your, your situation here. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Nick, completely. I think it's exactly right. As Nick said, I'm, I'm towards the end of my career, but nonetheless, the, the opportunities to learn, and especially I, I find the industrial facilities so interesting because you, you get involved in how is this product made from very low-tech low metal stamping kind of things all the way up to precision microelectronics or optics. And all of those are energy intensive operations. But as you work in an industrial facility, you need to assimilate the, the manufacturing process and understand that that is the, the tantamount requirement to, to have stable process conditions because sure you can save all the energy in the world, but if the, process conditions change and impact production, that is the bad day. You know, certainly 
energy is an expense, but it falls far behind the the need to maintain production, be profitable, and keep that production line or production process stable and happy through the environmental conditions. But it, it's interesting because you learn so much with with each new process that you that you encounter. And once you learn it, you internalize it and carry it forward to the next project. Yeah, industrials certainly have a, a, a diverse range of operating needs. But, you know, you can almost say the same thing about uh, or similar things about any different markets, whether it's K through 12 or higher education or healthcare. Every facility does have different needs, perhaps different requirements, certainly different constraints of how their buildings are built and oriented and a lot of things you can't change, but you still need to work within those parameters to to see uh, how you can lower the the total expense or the total BTU consumption. Well, and I think I find it interesting, especially in the industrial sector, how much just maintenance can waste energy, poor maintenance, right? We've been to facilities where you can literally walk in onto the, you know, on the shop floor, if you want to call it that, and hear compressed air leaks. And God, that just makes you want to cringe, I think, walking out there. I mean, just the amount of energy wasted because of that, because they care about more the product than, I don't know if you want to call it the process, but because it's been leaking like that for five years and you kind of, the operator might forget about that or not even hear it anymore. And those, just by going through a facility and identifying where there's maintenance issues that are wasting energy has got to be huge steam trap leaks. I mean, stuff like that has just wastes so much energy. So the first step to conservation, obviously I think would be also ensuring that your facility as a baseline is operating properly. Well, that's interesting, Clayton. And in fact, Clayton and I went to a facility um, a year or so ago where it was loud. I mean, the the manufacturing facility was loud, uh, the background noise. And mm-hmm. uh, we said, well, we have ultrasonic leak detector. And, you know, that obviously will detect sounds that you can't hear. And he said, well, it's too loud. That will never work. Okay. So I think I was, I was wearing the... Uh, headphones and ultrasonic definitely works and we wandered around the plant and i don't know we picked out six or seven big leaks in about 10 minutes and uh just really blew the guy's hair back and he said okay we understand we have to we have to do this now yeah but it was it was pretty interesting because he went from a skeptic to a believer over the course of uh, half a dozen pretty good sized leaks and I'll continue with this whole compressed air leak. I remember being on a project years ago and we we're actually doing something else and it was a, a food processing plant. And I'll never forget it because I think one area made cocktail sauce, but then you'd walk around the corner into another part of the building and they were bottling up peanut butter. So it was quite a combination of smells. That's what I'll remember. But we talked about the compressed air leaks. We weren't necessarily there to look at that. And, uh, it wasn't so much that we educated the facility on, hey, this costs a lot of money. It was more of, we know that's a problem, but it's just not on our priority list. So if you guys want to kind of handle that and come in and give us some ideas, that would help us along getting us kind of off the ground to even put that on our radar because they were focusing on other things and rightfully so. But so there was a big advantage to have somebody come in to see something that they already knew was a problem but to kind of help them get over it. 
you got to call that stuff. That's the low hanging fruit stuff when you come in an energy audit to go through and find that. It's so true. It was stuck on the compressed air again, that the entities, the companies, the business managers think of compressed air like other utilities as a fixed cost. We were on a large project a few years ago, had over 4,000 horsepower of compressed air operating to, to maintain the process. So in talking with the energy manager, we put together a plan. They had some air gauging processes where basically they're measuring bearing tolerances by uh, putting them on a shaft or a plate that uses a differential pressure to measure tolerances. Anyway, we said, let's just find out how much your leak rate is by shutting down the plant in, in its entirety. So everything that's not being used, it takes a little bit of time to, to stop and start air gauge, you know, 10 minutes, but let's shut them down for a weekend. And the leak load was almost a thousand horsepower. The leak load. Staggering. Yeah. Wow. Out of 4,000. So yeah. A thousand horsepower of leaks, which, you know, when you think about that, it, you're basically almost a three quarters of a megawatt of connected load. A lot of the times, and I know this isn't all about compressed air, but as an example, you know, remedying compressed air leaks is not a monumental effort. So it doesn't require a huge change in plan. You may be putting in different things in the compressed air system to help, whether it's storage, et cetera. But again, these are not things that require multi-million dollar retrofits to, right. to make better. And the low hanging fruit is completely appropriate terminology, but I think many times it kind of, I don't know, sets the stage that, well, our internal people, our facilities people, if they're really low hanging fruit, should be identifying all that. And, and it's not always the case. And sometimes, well, most times things aren't always as simple as maybe it first seems. Right. Yeah, definitely true. So I think it's a good time to roll into a little bit of just conversation regarding, we're, we're talking about the industrial sector, so we'll keep it that way in terms of energy consumption annually. And, and we, we shared between all of us a chart from the EIA kind of outlining energy consumption in that sector. And I, I think we should pull it up here and just talk about it a little bit. It, it was interesting to me to see that the total energy consumption in the industrial sector really hasn't changed since... 1990, 1995, and it's it's hung around 31 or 30 quadrillion BTUs per year, which is insane to me. Yeah, and you're right. So that goes, I'm looking at this too, from 1990, and then this uh, table has data through March of 2020, which is very current. And yeah, that is... Uh, an interesting observation when you look at those numbers, 30 quadrillion, and to see the well, hydropower has definitely decreased, biomass has increased, but. Yeah, I mean, what we, we kind of limited out. Well, it's actually, it's pretty interesting to see how, how much hydropower has decreased, because I thought that would stay steady. We kind of hit our 
we've dammed up everything we can dam up and if we're making what we can do i'm intriguing why that increase or decrease so much well and it looks like the 2013 was a pretty pivotal year there yeah was 33 what's the units here we're talking about trillion btu 33 trillion that would 33 be 33 trillion in yep. 2013 2014 dropped to 12 and that's where it's kind of been you know hasn't been more than that since and solar is a very a very small yep small piece wind is a lot of footnotes here and then just a couple of ones there yep and then i know we were talking a little bit before we started this podcast i noted the column electrical system energy losses and that's been pretty steady again since 1990 and to mark's point that could be a factor of the grid not changing too much right no the grid the grid really hasn't changed if you look if you look back all the way back to 1980 6.6 quad quadrillion and then reached a peak of losses in early 2001 yeah yeah so that was the you know, those were the years of energy deregulation where the electric utility companies, which previously were consolidated and had both uh, owned both transmission and production, broke apart, deregulated, and the assets sold to companies that either focused on production or focused on transmission. And the investors obviously are in it to make money. So the first thing you do is less maintenance. Speaking from personal experience, my dad was a lineman when I was very young for West Penn Power. And he climbed poles on a daily basis doing maintenance. That just plain doesn't happen anymore. They, they, mm. you know, you can drive down the road, you'll see trees, limbs on power lines, leaning against poles, those kinds of things. And the maintenance of clearing lines has been greatly reduced since the 60s when I was a kid, but the line losses reached a peak during the period of deregulation, and now they're back down to the same level that they were in 1980 after the you know the big deregulation curve. That is interesting looking at the numbers that way. Let me ask you a question: Where do you think uh, nuclear power is in this table, or why is it not in this table? Oh, you know that's a great. That is a great question because I think nuclear is, it should be. Yeah, it's very uh, interesting. We'll have to look that up and put it in on our next episode. See where, where it falls. Yep. I think nuclear should be on the higher end of the table personally, but. <laughs> you want more nuke plants? Yeah, I think I do. Oh, that'll cause a <laughs> ruckus with listeners yeah. now, won't it? <laughs> I think I do. I know I could have just pissed off a lot of people who knows, but it's possible. <laughs> well, that, 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 that shouldn't, I, mean, I know. I, I know. don't know why that would be offensive to anybody, but I know. Uh, cause we had a few failures testing out the limitations of some, you know, of our facilities and there we are. The stigma stuck. Yeah, it has for a lot of reasons, but uh, I definitely think it should be. I'm gonna have to. I want to look at the full report of this to see and yeah, get my my spectacles on and blow this up so I can look at the footnotes here. Maybe there's some reason why it's not included there, which could be. Well, I did take this completely. I don't want to say out of context, but there, you know, this is part of a. I think a little bit more of a, a document. So, 
Yeah, we'll have to dive into it for, for the next episode. I think at this note, though, I, I mean, we've covered a lot. We, you know, hopefully the listeners know a little bit about us, uh, the companies that you guys started and, and work with and where we stand on energy conservation, some stuff, you know, that we can add to the conversation. Hopefully people will be able to learn and see new viewpoints and we'll wrap it up here. I would say stay tuned guys. Our next episode, we'll be discussing the site walkthroughs and what to look for. So diving more into I guess if you want to call it the energy audit process and hopefully we'll have a little bit to add to that uh, the nuclear point that Nick made just to see where that lies. So thanks for tuning in. Have a great day, guys.